Okay, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'm going to start reading from verse 1. First Samuel 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkah, which belongs to Judah, and they camped between Sukkah and Azekah in Ephastamim. Saul and his men and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in the battle array to encounter the Philistines. The Philistines, the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side and the valley between them. Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scaled scaled armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of the spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. He stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But but if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants. And again the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when the Philistine, and when Saul saw that the army, I'm, I'm sorry, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Okay, so this is the classic chapter. This is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. This chapter that we just happen to be in today. So if you if you look at this in verse one. This, this battle is happening in, in, uh, in Sukkah, and, and they were camped in Sukkah in Azekah and Ephastamim. This is about, I don't know, 20 miles west of Bethlehem, 25 miles west of Bethlehem and, and Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and then, and then to, the, to the west of that is, is, uh, is this area. And so it says in verse 17, it says that, this area which belongs to Judah. So immediately we see what God's perspective is. This land belongs to the tribe of Judah. It does not belong to the Philistines. So immediately we see that this is a territory which belongs to Judah, belongs to the nation of Israel. As far as God is concerned, this is Israel's land. Someone is coming onto Israel's land to fight them. This is the way God is viewing this. And what I want you to do is, is and we will do this, we will make the, the, the relation to our own lives. There is something that is attacking these people, and God views this as His territory. He establishes that in verse 1. <clears throat> and it says that they stood on one side, and the children of Israel stood on the other, and there was this great man, Goliath, from Gath, the city of Gath, which was a little bit west of where they were standing. So, so the Philistines had, moved, had come east, the Israelites from Jerusalem, Bethlehem had, had come west and met on this land, which was part of Judah. And it says he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed. So, so first of all, it says in verse 4 that he was six cubits in a span. That's nine and a half feet tall. 
So this man was nine and a half feet tall. He thinks, well, they didn't really know how to measure things back then. They knew very well how to measure things. All right? Remember, it was the Israelites that were slaves earlier in Egypt and had built many of the pyramids. They knew very well how to measure things. You say, well, a human being can't be that tall. Look in the Guinness Book of World Records. There's, I, I, how tall is the, the t- tallest man that's documented in the Guinness Book of World Records? Pardon? 8 foot 11? Yeah, I, I knew it was 8 foot something. So, this, so he, the tallest man documented in the Guinness Book of World Records, or do they not know what they're talking about either? They don't know how to measure either. Right? So that's 8 feet and 11 inches. This man is 9 feet 6 inches. So that's within the realm, that's 7 inches within what's been measured in modern times. So can a man exist that large? Obviously, yes. This is well within the realm. This is you know, within a few percent of what we've seen in modern times. Okay, so this man was that big. Now it says he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. So just his armor was 5,000 shekels, so that's 150 pounds. So in other words, no matter how big this man is, he's not going to be moving very swiftly. He's, he's fitted for close-up battle. So he had this scaled armor, which the scaled armor by itself was 150 pounds. And, and that didn't include this bronze helmet. He also had bronze greaves on his legs, so that 150 pounds didn't include the bronze greaves. And a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. So on a sling, and he has it slung probably over his back between his shoulders, because you can't swing, sling a javelin in front of you, you can't move, but... Over his shoulders was the javelin. So the javelin wasn't... He, did, he didn't expect to use the javelin. He wanted close contact, but he had the javelin just in case. Slung between his shoulders. And his spear, the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And the head of the spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. So the spearhead alone was 20 pounds. So imagine a 20-pound weight. That was just the head of the spear, not the shaft of the spear. So the spear was, again, for fairly close contact. The javelin was for throwing far away. So if you, if you look at his equipment, just the, the coat of armor and the spearhead alone were 170 pounds. So at least he's carrying 250 pounds of material on him. No doubt he's a big man. So he's, he's maybe, maybe 50% bigger than, than a man who's, who's 6 feet tall or 6 foot 2. Six foot three. He's 50% bigger than that, but he's still carrying 250 pounds at least on him. That's a lot of weight. So in other words, he's not going to be running like a gazelle. Right? And a man that big is probably not that fast. You, know, you, you just don't want to get in his grasp. But uh, he probably doesn't, doesn't you know, run swiftly over the mountains. And this is going to become important when we see it in the nature in which David fought him. It was, David's attack was not haphazard. It was very calculated, purposeful, and specific. And this is the way David approached his life. This is the way, the way David approached his battles. And though we may think that, you know, well, David just happened to pick up a rock and throw it. No, it was a very calculated attack, which we'll see, and that's why we're going into this detail. It says in verse 8, 
in, in, in verse 8, he stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel and he said to them, why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. So what he does is he starts taunting the armies of Israel and he says, you know, why are you, you coming out in battle array? Choose for yourself somebody to come and fight with me. Let one individual among your group come and fight with me. And remember it said of Saul that he was head and shoulders taller than all men in Israel. So Saul was clearly the biggest man in Israel, but not that big. And, and uh, well, where's Jonathan, his son? Because we know from other chapters that Jonathan was very brave. So Jonathan may well have been restricted from coming to fight because Jonathan was, would take on entire garrisons alone. So it's interesting that the, the, the word never mentions Jonathan here. So either he was restricted or he wasn't there at that time. But he stood and he shouted. And look what he says. He says in verse 8, Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Well, he's only partially right. He defines them. He is defining for Israel who they are. He is defining for them that they are servants of Saul. But that's only partially right. And we'll see that David defines himself very differently. If we define ourselves by, by our own view of who we are, rather than God's view, it's always going to be smaller than what we are. So if you define yourself, you know, I, I'm just an engineer. You know, there's only so much that I can do. That's a very small view. If we are seeking God, there is much more than we can do, that we can do. And we'll see that. And then he says, you know, let the fight between, be between me and that person. And so he would come and he would taunt. Now in verse 12 of that same chapter. David, now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Beth, Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse. And he had eight sons. And Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. So... We know now that Jesse was older and advanced in years. And if he was over 50 years old, he probably didn't have to go out to battle anymore. So once he's over 50, you know, you, you, don't, you didn't have to go out to battle. And, and uh, so, so uh, uh, he must have been beyond 50. Beyond 50 was called old and advanced in years, which at one point in my life seemed old and advanced in years. It doesn't seem quite that way anymore. Anyway, um, it says the three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to the battle. And the names of the three sons that were in the battle were Eliab the firstborn, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul. So this, we had mentioned this before. These are the same three names that we had seen in the anointing where they were bypassed and they anointed David. So we know David is number eight. So if the three oldest are following Saul from 20 years old and upward, they had to be in the army. So if he had eight children, he roughly had, say, a child a year. Just, just assume he had a child roughly every year for eight years. Then you'd have the three oldest following Saul, and then you'd have five below that. So David is 15, 16 years at most based on this. So we can get a handle on how, David was, how old David was at this time. He may have been younger, but he certainly couldn't have been more than 16. Okay, so then it, it says, uh, David, David was the youngest now, and the three oldest followed Saul. Now in verse 17, Then Jesse said 
I'm sorry, let let me go back up in verse 14. Now, David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock in Bethlehem. The Philistine came forward morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. Then Jesse said to David, his son, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and, and these ten loaves and run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousands and look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them. For Saul and they and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Okay, so it says that David would go back and forth in verse 15. David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock. So David was the messenger. He would tend his father's flock. He was also doing his father's bidding by finding out the welfare of his brothers. So there was no Twitter back then. You you couldn't tweet. You couldn't tell people how you were doing. So there was no information transfer other than an individual from the family going and seeing, you know, are my brothers still alive? How are they? So he would send, and he would send food for them as well. He'd say, well, you know, doesn't the army supply food? Well, yes, to the extent that they can, but very often not... Not, not all the time. There's things that we take for granted. All the logistics in an army of moving food for, for armies in and out. And in Israel, to this day, the army is very different than the way we view armies. So, in other words, they, they, they have a mandatory service. So everybody at the age of 18, both, both men and women at the age of 18, go into service in Israel. That's how it is today. The women serve for two years. The men serve for three but when you serve, you still come home on the weekends. You still come home for Shabbat. Not every weekend, but a lot of them. Because Israel's a very small country, and you will see it. You, you know, you, you come uh, Friday morning, you see all these soldiers start filling the buses. They're all going home. And, and so even though someone's serving in the army, it could be way up in the north, but it's just a, a three-hour drive from the north down to Jerusalem, for example. And so they all come home. On, on, on Sabbath, on Friday, and they spend it with... Now, I'm sure there's some that are still stationed out there, but still, there's that you relate to your family. Just because you're in the army, you're not going away to fight. Israel doesn't go overseas to fight. Israel has enough fight right there. So they just stay right there. And that's how it was in this time. So David's going back and forth, and his father says, bring them some food, and also bring some cheese to their commander. There's no problem with being nice to the boss. There's no problem. You know, one young lady came up to me. She said, uh, you know, my boss hates me. And then, I said, you, you know, you're such a nice young lady. I wonder why she hates me. Well, you know, she's friends with this other person and I get my work done, you know, very quickly. And I said, why don't you do this? What does your wife, what does your boss like? She said, well, she likes coffee. I said, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you go pick up Starbucks coffee in the morning and bring it to her? She said, you think I should do that? She really doesn't like me very much. I said, yeah, do that. If you are nice to somebody, it will make you like them more. And if you are good to them, they will like you more. And so she did that. She found out what kind of coffee she likes and she brought her Starbucks. So she did that occasionally. This woman was so grateful, started taking this young lady out to lunch. And now they get along great. So there's nothing wrong with that. This is exactly what, what uh, uh, Jesse told Dave to do. Bring, bring something for the commander. Look into their welfare. And so this is exactly what David did. 
And we don't, we don't see David complaining in this. His father asked him to do something. He was tending the flock, and then he had to go. And this is, you know, say 20 miles. He has to go and bring, bring this, these things. Verse 20. So David arose early in the morning, and he left the flock with a keeper, and took the supplies and went, went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. Then David left his baggage in the care of a baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. He was talking with them, and behold, the champion, the Philistine, named, uh, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke these same words, and David heard them. Okay, so we had heard uh, in up in 16, that the Philistine had done this for 40 days, he would come and taunt the armies of Israel. David goes and it says that he left early in the morning. Well, what do we see about David? He was a, an early riser. This is not a bad thing to be, an early riser. And he went and he knew he had to get a job done. He rose early. He left the flock, not alone. He left the flock, it says, with a keeper. You will see David is extremely responsible and he ends up being a, a, a natural leader of men. But he was very responsible with things. He left the flock with a keeper. He didn't just say, well, my father's sending me uh, sheep. You're on your own. No, he left them with a keeper. If you are diligent and responsible with tasks that you are asked to do, you will be given greater and greater tasks. To whom much is given, much is expected. And so you will be given more and more. And Jesus said that, that uh, uh, if you use the gifts that you have in Matthew 25, you'll be given greater gifts. This is in your work. This is in your career. This is in the kingdom of God. If God has given you a gift, you can't hold that thing back. Because if you do, you don't use it, you will lose it. This is exactly what we see in Matthew 25. The one who took the talents, the gifts, and dug a hole and just kept them in the ground. It says that they were taken from him and he was thrown into outer darkness. So this is a very good lesson for us. Has, this, has God given you a talent, say, in teaching? Has God given you a talent in service, in just setting up chairs, in doing things? If you don't use that talent for the building up of the body of Christ, it will never be manifest and be brought up in a great way. The more you use the talents that God has given you, the more you will be blessed. The greater and greater your talents will become. But he was responsible with things. He left them with, with a keeper, it says. He took the supplies and he went as Jesse had commanded him. His father told him to do something and he did it. Just as his father had told him to do, he did it. And not all 16-year-old boys are like this. But his father asked him to do something, and he did it. It says he came to the circle of the camp when they were going out in the battle array. And uh, David, it says in verse 22, he wanted to go and see the welfare of his brothers, but he didn't just leave the baggage. You know, I was preaching the same message once in India. And I said, you know, I, I, I flew into the, the airport there in the city in... Uh, in uh, um, where did... Where, into Bombay. And I said, imagine if I had just left my baggage there on the curb and went across to the other side of the airport to check on something. And everybody burst out laughing because they knew that my baggage would have been gone in a heartbeat at Bombay Airport. It's like, it's, anyway. 
He left the baggage. Why? Because there was food there. There were great cuts of cheese and this, this ephod grain. And so he left them with a baggage keeper. Again, another act of responsibility. He was careful with the things that he was told to tend to. So he left them with the baggage keeper. And then he ran to the battle line to see his brothers. And out comes this Goliath saying these words again. Now in verse 24. When the, son, when the men of Israel saw the man, the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? The people answered him in accord with this word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. But David said, What have I done? Was it not just a question? Then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing, and the people answered him the same thing as before. So, David goes to meet his brothers, and he hears from the men in verse 25 that whoever, whoever takes, takes on Goliath, it says that, that um, and, and kills him, that, that uh, uh, the king will give him great riches. Number one. Number two, whoever kills Goliath is going to be given the daughter of King Saul. Now, the daughter must have been good looking, or else that would have been no incentive. You know, really, you know, it's true, right? I mean, so, so, you know, people would go, wow, get the king's daughter. I mean, this, is, this was something that was good. And then, make his father's house free in Israel. So, uh, um, his, his whole father's household wouldn't have to pay taxes anymore. So these are the three things. And the reason I point this out is because David ends up killing Goliath. David does not get the king's daughter. He does not give her to David. He ends up giving her to somebody else. David ends up getting another one of the king's daughters, but he has to do some other act to get her. So so Saul never kept his agreement on that. Uh, uh, David uh, uh, was never enriched by the king, never received great riches by the king. So there was another thing that David didn't get. Whether his, his father's house was ever made free in Israel, free of taxes in Israel, we have no indication of that. So, if you have been promised something in life by somebody, by an employer, and it's not been delivered, get over it. All right? Don't hold this thing all the time. David very much got over this. You may not receive everything that has been promised to you, but if you hold on to this, it's going to wear you down. Just let it go. Let the thing go. I was in a, in, in a uh, board meeting recently, and two people were going at it, and, you know, they're on the same board. And this is of a ministry, and, and you know, the one guy who's, who's a lawyer is saying this thing, and another guy is saying, no, you know, we have this thing. And they're going at it, and the, and the one guy who's a lawyer said, you know, the board is, you know, you, this has to be respected by the board. And he finally said, stop it. Just stop. The board is not the ultimate here. He says, it is. I said, no. It's the brotherhood in Christ. 
It's the brotherhood. What happens if you should win your case, but you've lost your brother? It doesn't really matter that much. What you're fighting for here is really nothing compared to our brotherhood. And so even as believers, we can lose sight of this at at times. So learn to let these things go. So they told this to David, and then that was in verse 25. Now in verse 26, David spoke to the men who were standing by him saying, What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? So he just heard it in verse 25. Now what's he doing? He's confirming it. Really? Whoever kills this person is going to get the king's daughter? And be rich? And be free of taxes? He's confirming this. And they said, yeah, that's right. So David, look at how David views himself. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? He doesn't just say we are servants of Saul. He views himself as part of the army of the living God. When Moses sent the twelve spies into the wilderness, they all came back. They gave a bad report because they said the land is very good, but there's giants in that land. What kind of giants? Well, like Goliath-type giants were in that land. And it says, we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we became in their sight. You see that? We were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we became in their sight. If we view ourselves as small and insignificant, that's how others will view us. But if we view ourselves with the power with which God has given us, we will be viewed in that way. Let me give you an example to bring this home to you. I don't fight Goliath. I've never experienced a man that I've had to actually fight with. I've never shed any blood. I've never killed anyone. But I've had my fights, the fights that God has given me. And I'll I'll describe those to you. And one day you will be in like situation and you can remember. So there have been many situations where I've had to go in and give a seminar before a group of people that knew the field better than I did. One of the things that I do is I always work in fields that I know nothing about. And because of that, we end up discovering lots of new things because we view it very differently. But a lot of times, I'm not the smartest guy in the room concerning that subject. Not at all. And I will get down on my knees before I go into that seminar. I'll be in the hotel room that morning and say, God, fill me and anoint me. Fill me to overflowing. And I remember particularly how how worried I would be when I was an assistant professor and I'd have to go before all these big shots and present my work. And in each case, God would fill and anoint and just drive home this amazing message to unbelievers. Because I would say, God, fill me with the power of the Holy Spirit. And guess what? He would do it. Surprise, God answers prayer. God does that. There are things that you take on and you are challenged with. I remember when I first started working at the State University and I, I put a scripture verse on my exam and I was putting things up and, and uh, I was talking to one older guy, and, and, uh, one older believer who was a faculty member and he said, yeah, you know, he had done these sort of things and one day his, the chair of his department, the chairman of his department wrote him a letter and, and uh, said he has to cease and desist from having this Bible study in his office. I said... Oh, really? What would you do? He says, I just threw the letter out. I said, oh, what a marvelous idea. I never thought of that. You know, this is just great. You just throw it out. I mean, now what's the chairman going to do? <laughs> just throw it out. 
That was in the days before email. Now it's just easier. You just hit a button, delete, and they never know if you really got it. Message? What message are you talking about? And I thought, this is a wonderful idea. And I've lived my life like that ever since. Every time people have opposed it, I just throw it out. And they go away. They never come. They never confront. I mean, that's it. I just throw it out. It's a marvelous way of dealing with it. It is disregarded. Because why? It's all this taunting and this fluff up here. And one day the, the dean asked me to come to his office because I had... Uh, what did I do? It, it was at the end of the semester, I put a stack of papers up at the front, which were my personal testimony. And I said to the students in the class, I said... Um, uh, after your exam, there's something at the front here. It's a gift from me to you. It has nothing to do with this course. You don't have to take it. It's optional. You may take it if you like. And so after the exam, you know, they throw their exam up there and they grab this thing. And You don't make friends on campus by teaching organic chemistry. It's not the way to make friends. And, and, and though people may like you in the beginning, right after the first exam, you just see the whole attitudes change when they come walking into the lecture hall. They look at you differently after the first exam. And so this was after the final. And I left this up there. And at that point, they're not happy with me at all. But in any case, they had my testimony. Well, somebody turned this testimony into the provost. And the provost didn't want to have to de deal with it. So he went to the person under him, the dean. And so the dean now had to deal with it. And so he calls me into his office. And he says, uh, and he has one of these sheets of paper, so he has my testimony. So he's got my testimony. <laughs> you know? And uh, he says, you know, this, this was actually faxed to me by the, the, the provost's office, and they wanted me to talk with you about it. I said, okay, what, what would you like to say? They said, well, the university council, that means the university lawyer, has said that you might be breaking the law in what you did. And I said, Jerry, I assure you I didn't break the law. The university attorney is wrong. Just as somebody could say to their class that if you'd like to play tennis, you know, here's my schedule, I'd love to play tennis with you. If you're going to allow that, you have to allow this by law. So I haven't broken any law, and it was purely optional. It even said at the top of the sheet, optional, nothing related to the class. You know, so I put that on it. And uh, uh, I said, I've not broken any law. And he said, Jerry, let me, let me ask you this. You're a chemist, and he happened to be a chemist as well. And I said, when, when you look at the biology, at the biochemistry of life, look at DNA, look at the enzymes, can you say that there is no God? He says, Jim, I agree with you. That's not the issue. I said, no, this is the issue. The issue is that you, the dean, can agree with me, the chemistry professor, in my office on the very existence of God and his power. But we're not allowed to step out of your office and say this? So then I met with the university council, and after I had a talk with him, he said to me, you know, you might be right. You know, so lawyers say all sorts of things that are wrong. All right? So, but I became very good friends. I never put this in their face. And in fact, when I was leaving that university, oh, and by the way, I wrote a letter to the provost, a long letter. I said, if you want to... If, I want you to know everything I've done. Not only did I hand out this sheet, but I put a scripture verse at the top of every exam because some people, you know, they quote John Lennon at the top of an exam. And if John Lennon is allowed, then Jesus Christ is allowed. And that's true. By law, that is true. And, and so, in, in fact, what I did is I set the thing up 
in later semesters, I quoted George Washington because usually the verse I put at the top of an exam is a, it's a, it's a mundane verse. You know, the Jesus, it doesn't even mention Jesus. It's usually out of the book of Psalms, something about God's love or something like that. But I quoted George Washington, who has this beautiful prayer over the nation, over this country, and he says, uh, you know, asking God to bless the nation in the name of His Holy Son, Jesus Christ. And I put this right at the top of the exam. And then... I wrote a letter to the, the, the provost. This was the next semester. I wrote a letter and I, and I quoted this thing from George Washington. And I said, you know, I put this at the top of the exam. Would the administration like to tell me what parts of George Washington I can quote and what parts I can't quote? He is the father of our country. You know, now no administration will ever say, you can quote this part but not this part. You see what I mean? That would get them in terrible trouble. So... And I said, that's not the only thing that I do. I pray with my students. I, I put verses on the top of my exams. And, I, and, and uh, I said, you don't have to be terrified of this. And uh, um, when I was leaving that university, the president called me to his office and he says, I want to introduce you to my staff. And he introduced me to his staff. He says, I want you to know why we've been blessed, so blessed as a university. It's because of this guy. He said, I see this guy going to the chapel on campus all the time and praying. It's because of this guy and his prayers. So I was nice to them. I was gracious to them. But most of what would come is exactly what Goliath would say. It's just, it's just chatter up here. There was nothing. As soon as I stood up to this, it went away. One guy sent me this nasty email. You know, you do this, you do that, da 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 and I sent him an email back. Yeah, I'm going to do this. And then he sent me an email. And in his first email, he said, I'm a lifelong atheist. And he started saying all these things. Oh, yeah. And it was because I had sent out a notice to all the faculty. I paid for it. You know, a, a, a mailing to inviting them to a prayer meeting or something. And he said, you know, I was offended by this. I said, well, you know, if you're offended by it, throw it out. Just throw it in the trash. Because I can't tell... The, the, the mail service to give it to all faculty except you. And then he wrote back, he says, you're not like the other Christians that I know. And I said, you know, here you are, a lifelong atheist, and now you're a judge of what a true Christian is. Because he said, you're not true Christians like the other Christian I know. So anyway, as soon as I dealt with this, it was over. What I have found is that if you speak up a little bit about Jesus, just a little bit, like stand there, one of the servants of Saul with the armor on, People will confront you. But, if you hit them with howitzers, if you just come in with huge guns and you just give it right, they stay away from you because they're afraid. They want nothing to do with you. You see what I mean? The, if the contest is brought to you and say, okay, come on. What would you like to talk about? You want to talk about Jesus Christ and how great He is? Let me tell you about what He's done in my life. And they're like... Oh, man, this guy's crazy. And they go away. They never, ever, ever come back. And what happens is if you speak a little bit, you get confronted. If you speak a lot and loudly, they leave you alone because they think you're crazy. They just leave you alone. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Most of what comes against us is not Goliath in the physical. It is a spiritual thing and it is an attack on the intellectual. They will attack on the intellectual side. And this verse in particular specifically addresses that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, start reading from verse 20, 
start reading from, from, um, from verse 20, from, from verse 19. Start reading from verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God is well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block to Gentiles' foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. So look what he does. He says, he establishes up front so much of what's going to come against you, because you are the intellectuals, is an intellectual attack against the gospel. And you can always win. Look, because in verse 19 he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the cleverness of the clever, I will set aside. God says, I will. Destroy the wisdom of the wise. The cleverness of the clever, I will set aside. It is God who does this. Look at what, what Spurgeon says. Spurgeon, the, 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 uh, the prince of preachers, here's what he says concerning that very passage in 1 Corinthians 1.19, which says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. He says, this verse is threatening so far as the world, worldly wise are concerned, but to the simple believer it is a promise. The professedly learned are forever trying to bring to nothing the faith of the humble believer, but their faith in their, but they fail in their attempts. Their arguments break down, their theories fall under their own weight, and their deep laid plots discover themselves before their purpose is accomplished. Now remember, this was written in about 1860. The old gospel is not extinct yet, nor will it be while the Lord liveth. If it could have been exterminated, it would have perished from off the earth long ago. We cannot destroy the wisdom of the wise, nor need we attempt it. For the work is, not, is in far better hands. The Lord himself says, I will. And he never resolves in vain. Twice does he in this verse declare his purpose. And we may rest assured that he will not turn aside from it. God will overcome in this. God will do it. You know, people will say to me, oh, you know, this, this, uh, this certain biology professor, you know, always is coming against Christians. I thought, I don't know this biology professor, but why don't you go and talk to her about her life? Ask her about her husband. Ask her about her children. If she's going to waste her time coming against Christians in her class, I bet her children don't like her. You know, she's, got a, she's probably a pretty bitter woman. And I've never even heard of her name. You know, I said, what, what's her name? I've never even heard of her. She can't be very good. You know, because if they're any good, you know, you hear about them on campus. So she can't be that good as a scientist, even. These things just pass away. Most of the attack that comes against you is an intellectual attack. And it's this, this roaring. But remember, it's just chatter. And if you stand up to it, you will win. He says that, God says that he will defeat this thing. Verse 26 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise among you, not according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Okay, so I want you to consider this. If you look among believers, God has primarily not chosen the wise of this world to be believers. The reason that you 
We're chosen. The reason that I was chosen is because we are not wise. That's the definition. Once in a while you find among believers someone who's really smart. But here it says, God chose us because we were not wise. For consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise uh, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not that He might nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. The reason God chose you, the reason God chose me is because we are not the strong, we are not the wise. God says, I choose them and I'm going to confound the world through them. Through them. Once in a while I'll get an email from somebody I grew up with. They'll say, you know, I... Heard about you, and, and you know one of my childhood friends, and, and they are made. You, know, you were never that good in school. I never was. I was just regular guy. It, what happened? This is God. This is God does this. You think that God doesn't lift us up in our work? You don't read the scriptures. Whatever you put your hand to, He can bless it if you will have faith. If you will have faith, He will bless it. If you believe, He won't. He won't. It's all coupled to your faith. We're going to close with this. First Corinthians, uh, I'm sorry, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. This whole chapter on faith. Hebrews chapter 11. Reading from verse 32. And what more shall I say? Hebrews 11:32. For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, and put arm, foreign armies to flight. Look at what God did through very basic people. Many of these men had struggles. He lists men, and all of them have had struggles. And it says, look what they did in verse 33. By faith, they conquered kingdoms, they performed righteous acts, they obtained promises. You will obtain the promises in this book by faith. If you believe that God will not give it to you, you will not receive it. That's what it says. You will obtain promises by faith. They shut the mouths of lions, they quenched the power of fire, they escaped the edges of the sword. From weakness were made strong. You are weak, you will be made strong. You come before God and say, God, I am weak, I can't do this. Boom! His power comes upon you. From weakness they were made strong, they became mighty in war. You don't become mighty by sitting back, you become mighty in war. It's when you dropped into this battle, you go, uh-oh, God help me. You become mighty in war. By faith you will receive this. That's what made David different. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word. I pray, O oh God, that you would so move and so work in these young people's lives to draw them close to Jesus, to walk in faith like David walked, to see things differently and from your perspective. Father, I give their young hearts to you. And I say, Lord, impact the world through them. Let them not be crumbled under the taunting of Goliath, but to stand strong in the name of Jesus. Amen.